Hey, Real Talk podcast listeners, it's a horrific story. Hockey player Adam Johnson dies after an opposing player's skate slashes his neck. Two weeks after the tragedy, this week, British police arrest a man on suspicion of manslaughter. The hockey world and society at large appears to be split. Was a crime committed on the ice that night? We get into it with Toronto Star columnist Bruce Arthur. Plus... Bruce talks to us about his recent column on how the internet and social media is making the Israel-Hamas war even worse. And we get to a couple emails from Real Talkers just like you about our coverage of that war and Remembrance Day. This is a Relay Project. Real Talk starts right now. Here's Ryan Jesperson. want to welcome you to this episode of Real Talk. Coming up in just a moment, one of Canada's most read and most well-known columnists, Bruce Arthur, is going to spend some time with us. And, and as Bruce does in his column, we're, we're going to cover uh, two stories, two very high-profile stories, both of them international stories of interest uh, and certainly influencing uh, Canadians in very different ways. An arrest made by police in Britain yesterday in the death of hockey player Adam Johnson. A man arrested on suspicion of manslaughter. Bruce has spent many years covering sports stories. I'm going to ask him what he makes of that tragic story. But Bruce has also written a recent piece in the Toronto Star, which you may have read already. The headline, What Will Help Ease the Latest Mideast Crisis? Well, it won't be the Internet. Bruce gets into this story from a different angle, talks about some of the developments at Canadian universities, some of the accusations that have been leveled at journalists, in some cases by journalists, the tensions, the anti-Semitism and Islamophobia on display in Canada and around the world. That's all coming up in this episode of Real Talk, which is made possible by our presenting sponsors today at Verifiable Credentials. You know, we've all heard by now that credential fraud is on the rise. Uh, Premier Danielle Smith touched on it in her appearance on this show just about a week and a half ago. You know, whether it's nurses, oil patch workers, or even personal support workers, there's been no shortage of news headlines where a fake credential has put people's safety at risk. Luckily, there's an innovative technology that'll make credential fraud a thing of the past. Digital verifiable credentials are secure, cloud-based credentials that go far beyond traditional certificates, digital badges, or PDFs. In other words, they're impossible to forge, impossible to falsify. You can't alter them either. Verifiable credentials are tamper-proof and independently verifiable credentials that use open web standards, which means they're trusted, real-time digital credentials. They live in a digital wallet. They can be viewed, managed, and shared from anywhere, so they're easy to manage. And with We Know Training, they can also plug seamlessly into your training courses. If you want to learn more about using verifiable credentials in your training or credentialing program, visit verifiablecredentials.ca today. As we welcome Bruce Arthur to the show, a columnist with the Toronto Star, of course, the hockey world was waiting to see what would happen as police investigated the death of Adam Johnson, a 29-year-old, a former National Hockey League player with the Pittsburgh Penguins who had spent time playing pro in Sweden, in Germany, and most recently for the Nottingham Panthers. Back on October 28th, disaster struck on the ice, and Adam Johnson lost his life 
hours after he was cut in the neck by a blade. Bruce joining us live this morning, and obviously this was a story that was that was horrific to see, Bruce. Not the first time that there's been a similar injury on the ice. Not the first time that there's been a, a fatality on the ice, but there were things that set this incident apart. Since October 28th, how, how have you been wrapping your mind around what happened? Well, Ryan, I mean, the first thing is you have to balance the fact that it's not like it's shock. Right. Because I think if you've covered hockey, you know how dangerous the game can be. You know that eventually something like this could happen and has nearly happened. Uh, Not just Clint Malarchuk. Right. Um, And then you have to go, what will this change? And what what would what could possibly be the implications of this? I think there was always a possibility that the law would get involved. I don't think it's the right move, but I think we're going to have to let that play out. In terms of the accident itself, um, I mean, the the funny thing with hockey, funny is maybe the wrong word, is that we know what the dangers are. And in some cases, the solutions are already ready, right? The solutions already exist. Uh, when it comes to neck guards, there are companies, TJ Oshie of the Washington Capitals is, is an investor in a company that makes neck, neck guards, right? We've seen wrist guards. We've seen cut-proof skates. We've seen things because when you put skates on people and have them run into each other, bad things can happen. Hockey knows this. Hockey's always known this. Uh, The fact that hockey, and like probably a lot of sports, waits until something like this happens to have serious conversations, that is a little bit a part of the reactive nature of humans and maybe the reactive nature of a game that doesn't generally like to change. Uh, Bruce, there may be people that haven't yet seen footage of what happened. I want to let everybody know we're about to show video of the incident. We're ensuring that the aftermath of the incident is not going to be shown on the show right now. But for those of you that are watching on YouTube, you're about to see what happened. Uh, This is October 28th. This is a hockey game between the Nottingham Panthers and the Sheffield Steelers. Uh, You're going to see Adam Johnson uh, skating into the offensive zone, a a, a player by the name of Matt Petgrave. Uh, You'll see appears to lose his balance. People have their own judgment on this, Bruce. I'll get your take on this. Obviously, this is slowed down. This happens over the course of about a a quarter of a second. It happens very quickly, but you can see that Matt Petgrave's uh, skate blade rises up and strikes Adam Johnson in the neck, um, inflicting damage that that ultimately was impossible to repair. Uh, The blood loss on the ice uh, was horrific. Uh, Johnson managed with help to skate to the bench. He was taken immediately, obviously, to hospital where he did receive treatment but was unable to recover uh, from his injuries. Hockey's a game where things happen fast, but of course, as as the internet does, as social media does, as the comments pages do, there are a thousand different takes on whether or not this was intentional, whether or not this is manslaughter. What do you make of the incident itself? Well, a lot, maybe coincidentally, a lot of the pages that called this murder right away are also pages that you wouldn't have to find go very far to find something that resembles racism, right? Because Petgrave is, of course, black. Um, and Adam Johnson is white. Uh, one of the things about covering hockey that I always found kind of notable is that two people from two different fan bases can watch a hit. And there used to be a lot more really scary hits in the NHL. I think we all remember that. I can remember how elbows and shoulders um, used to collide with heads at a much greater rate than they do now. That's to the credit of the league that, they, that they've kind of reduced that. 
but there are bad hits in hockey and two people from two different fan bases can look at the exact same hit and see totally different things, totally different realities. It's a lot like politics that way, right? Um, is you see what you want your team uh, to, what you want out of your team. And that was the case, I think, with the, some of the initial um, and more inflammatory uh, interpretations of this play. I asked a bunch of people who really know hockey. I, I kind of canvassed a bunch of people that I canvass regularly of this kind of thing and said, what do you think he was thinking? What do you think Petgrave was thinking in that moment? And nobody really knows. Like, nobody can say for sure. Like, is he trying to get in the way of Johnson and he just loses his balance? Well, that's strange because he's moving left and then wouldn't it be his right leg that would fly up, right? The left leg wouldn't fly up on on a balance thing. Um, One player, one of Johnson's teammates, said that his foot catches the leg and and pops up. And that's possible. Um, The one thing that everybody agreed on is there's, it's unimaginable, which doesn't mean it's impossible, but it's unimaginable to think that a guy who had played his whole life, a guy who's played in the OHL, the AHL, um, who's played in various countries, who's 31 years old and has been playing hockey since he was a kid, that there was a play there where he thought it would be a good idea to raise his skate, right? That I asked Ray Ferraro, Ray Ferraro, played 1300 NHL games and now doesn't just call games, but calls games from ice level. He said, he's never seen anything close to this. And we've seen guys with their, with their legs have come up, but usually it's that when you have near misses or when you have skates to the face, um, it's because the head came down to where the skates are, right? This is different. There is no way to accurately divine malicious intent on this play. I think. But it is one of the strangest plays I think a lot of people have ever seen in hockey. And if it ha- if he'd been a quarter second later, right? If it had been three inches to the side, um, then we never hear about this, mm-hmm. right? But the exact right or wrong confluence of events happened. That skate blade hits Adam Johnson right in the throat. Um, and it's almost like, if you play enough hockey games, maybe something like this happens. Someone let, loses control of a leg at the wrong time. Mm. It's still just a truly strange play to watch. And and like and, and like you said, <clears throat> everything happens so fast. And if you watch enough hockey, you'll see it. I mean, it just so happens it's the neck. Like it's 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 to state the obvious, the worst possible place. It's 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 the you know there are very few exposed mm-hmm. areas. Another one is the wrist. I mean, people that yeah. watch the National Hockey League saw last year Evander Kane lose a significant part of the season after his wrist was cut. Tendons were damaged. Had to have surgery. Obviously, same same deal. And and now he wears uh, equipment on his wrist. And I'm sure maybe a few other players made that change as well after seeing that injury. You said the minute that we started talking that that you're. I want to put words in your mouth. You said something like you're not convinced this is the right move, or or you don't you're not necessarily convinced that. That the, and the way that British reporting works and the way that the rules of the court go is we can say that Adam Johnson was cut by Matt Patgrave and police have arrested a man under su- uh, suspicion of manslaughter. You don't think that's the right move. You don't, you don't think he sh- this man should be arrested. How come? So um, manslaughter is essentially um, you killed someone, but you didn't really mean to, mm-hmm. right? Like uh, whether, And there's various definitions for it under British law, but one of them is just recklessness. 
one trick with doing that within the context of professional sports is, and I don't know how much, and I'm not a lawyer. I'm not certainly not an English lawyer, so I don't know on this, but there is an assumption that this could happen anytime anybody steps on the ice. Um, and Matt Petgrave presumably knew that. And Adam Johnson knew that. And that doesn't mean that this is something that it, it, it doesn't excuse or, or wipe away what happened, obviously, but hockey is a game i mean the, the the equivalent in english sport would probably be if someone was killed in a rugby match because someone went on a high a tackle that was oddly strangely high and broke someone's neck right it's it would be tragic but it is something that is within the relative accepted bounds of the game so that that becomes a question of what do I remember being at the Super Bowl years ago and I asked Ed Reed, the great Baltimore Ravens uh, safety, one of my favorite players ever, um, because he was talking about how he was forgetting where his keys were, right? Stuff like that, little things in life. And I said, well, you know, Ed, isn't that kind of scary? Like a lot of concussions in your career. He goes, well, this is what I signed up for. Mm. Now, that wasn't true because when Ed Reed started playing football, no one knew as much about concussions as they did then or as they know now. So it wasn't, in fact, and Ed, Ed admitted this to me. He, this is not actually what I signed up for. But in hockey, the danger is there. Everybody knows it. Um, and I, I have trouble seeing the law as a remedy here. Um, I really do. Um, and it's possible that Petgrave will wind up going to prison for this. Um, but I, I have rarely, if ever, seen... The times when we've seen the law get involved in hockey in Canada, certainly, they were actions where you could see intent and anger, right? Because everybody knows the rest of the stuff, accidents happen. This, to me, and to a lot of people who really know hockey, looked like an accident. And I think, again, hockey is a sport where you have to accept that this might happen, as terrible as it is. Tell me if, <clears throat> tell me off the top of your head if I'm missing any. I, I I did a bit of a dive just to see. You know, obviously there have been several incidents where criminal charges have been laid or police have become involved in in beer league, uh, where mm-hmm. people just go bananas and and we've seen that guys are over the bench and and obviously I think everyone's seen that stuff online. But in the National Hockey League, three incidents, maybe the well I don't know if it's the most high profile one, but Marty McSorley on Donald Brashear for sure. Uh, people remember the two enforcers uh, tangled several times throughout their careers. But, of course, Marty McSorley, when he was with the Boston Bruins, uh, slashing Brashear in, in the side of the head. Um, there are many different opinions on whether or not there was intent to injure there. What does matter is that Brashear temporarily lost consciousness, fell, hit his head on the ice. Uh, McSorley, uh, of course, paid the price there uh, through the criminal courts and, uh, and, and never, I mean, never obviously recovered career-wise. There was Todd Bertuzzi punching Steve Moore from behind. Um, which uh, Bertuzzi's career was never the same. It ended Moore's career, um, and, and there were legal ramifications there. That, that was arguably maybe the most high-profile one as well. And then I, I looked back, Dino Cicerelli um, had clubbed Luke Richardson, uh, and Cicerelli had been uh, found guilty, uh, paid a fine, and, uh, and of course that went through the courts as well. So th- there are three high-profile ones. You've been talking about sports, analyzing sports. You've been a sports fan basically your whole life. That's, that's kind of like a... That's a bit of a gray area. Like hockey is one of the only sports that allows fight it, that allows bare knuckle brawling. Basically, um, typically they're willing combatants, but not always. I mean, there are incidents that are questionable that are in the gray areas 
let's talk about when it makes sense for police, for the justice system to get involved in something that's happening in an organized sport on the ice or in the field of competition, you know, in the, 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 we, we sort of mm-hmm. look at that as so once the players step onto the ice, once the football players run onto the field, once basketball, I mean, there have been criminal charges in basketball games as well. Uh, there have been some wild incidents there. When does it cross the line from the referees trying to sort it out to the cops? Well, clearly it has to be when what happens on the ice escapes the accepted bounds of the game. And and I'm it's it's a very very case by case, and I'm not even sure. Looking back, you can say that Marty McSorley getting charged by the cops for that is something that should have happened. I disagree I'm with that. I'm not sure. You, I I the thing is, you can see plays like that in a hockey game anytime in the last fifty years, and worse, and worse, right? Like the NHL is really interesting in terms of how it suspends acts like this. Um, where it does consider intent and it does consider the outcome, right? So if you apply that in life, like, because there's a lot of plays that could have been disastrous, could have ended careers where the guy misses by this much, right? And uh, someone walks away instead of not. I think that it, it has to be well outside the bounds of the sport. And I think it has to be intentional. Because if you if we replayed that collision, the Pat Grave Johnson collision at full speed, and this is something that Johnson's teammates actually said, this happens so fast. It happens so fast, and that's that's hockey. That's the thing is that we could as as odd as that play is, and I still don't know what Petgrave was thinking. I don't. It's it, there's it's it's not impossible to think that he was trying to get his skate up. Although again, it's unimaginable to anyone who knows the game. Yes, uh, um, we don't know what he was thinking. And in hockey, collisions happen. I've written about football players who ran into each other on a football field, and one of them was paralyzed for the rest of his life. Right, that's football. It's terrible. Like if you go back to college football in the early 1900s, college players were dying every other week. Um. The, the sport eventually changed and protected its players a little better, but there's certain things you can't legislate out of the game. And in hockey, a collision with guys who are wearing skates might not have the best body control and things like this can happen. It is just, it's one of the things that you worry about if you watch hockey for, it, it's one of the things you worry about if you watch short track speed skating, right? Long blades and a femoral artery just waiting to be cut and they don't wear gear. But that's, I can't see a short track speed skating um, manslaughter charge from someone who tried to pass someone, even in an odd way, and wound up accidentally cutting them in a way that killed them, right? It it still is within the accepted bounds of the game that collisions like this could happen, even though they rarely do, not like that. Yeah, I just, like, I don't know Matt Petgrave. I know that a lot of people are saying, well, listen, he's got a history of bad behavior. You know, he's led some leagues in penalty minutes. He's he's had several suspensions. You could say that about 5,000 hockey players. Um, yeah. That doesn't make them killers. And 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 I, I don't know him personally. Obviously, nobody knows. Um, Johnny and I, uh, producer of the show, not, not, neither of us legal experts. 
uh, but we're talking about this yesterday, uh, right around the time I reached out to you, Bruce, and, and, and right when that arrest had been made, or at least when it had been made public. And I'm sitting there saying, like, if, if you're the prosecution here, I mean, I'm sure that Pat Grave, his family, first of all, I mean, number one, Adam Johnson's family, let's be clear, like, yeah. Adam Johnson lost his life. Uh, Adam Johnson's family are the true victims here. It's a horrific situation, okay? I want to be clear about that. Number one, our thoughts are with him. May he rest in peace, his family, his friends, his circle. This is something that has had a huge ripple effect through the hockey community, and it's an absolute tragedy. Uh, New Mm -hmm. paragraph. 100%. New paragraph. Matt Petgrave, whether or not he's an enforcer, a goon, or even a dirty player, that doesn't make him necessarily somebody that was trying to kill someone. Um, I would imagine that any human being uh, that was involved in a situation like this is the rest of their life is ruined. Um, I know people that have have been in in vehicle accidents, not their fault, where someone else was killed in the accident and they're never truly themselves again, even though it wasn't their fault. But the prosecution here will be interesting to see, because like you said, Bruce, that you know, it, 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 we're talking about milliseconds. We're talking about a fraction of a second. Um, and while it's not a murder one charge or something like that, still they're going to have to establish that that there was some culpability here, that, that, that this wasn't just a player losing his balance. And, and I don't know, if you start breaking down video that that's shot at, I'm assuming, 30 frames per second and start looking at one or two or three frames, so you're talking about a tenth of a second here, And then changing the course of someone else's life, like I said, Adam Johnson, the the victim here. But if Matt Petgrave ends up doing time convicted of manslaughter, basically a killer uh, for something that was absolutely 100% unintentional, that is, I hesitate to say it, but I'll say it, it's tragedy upon tragedy. Um, And and I'm having a hard time. I think you're right. You know? Yeah. Well, and again, so I I remember writing a story, and I can't remember the names now because it's almost 20 years now, about... The, the, the two college football players who collided and one of them was paralyzed the rest of his life. And they stayed in contact and t- the rest of their lives until the guy who was paralyzed died at a relatively young age. But uh, the guy who collided with him, um, he was never the same, right? He it, it's that weighed on him the rest of his life. And I'm sure that'll happen with Petgrave. Um, again, we do have laws in society for, recklessness causing injury or death, right? Like you can't just get in your car and slam the accelerator and see what happens at the other end. Yeah. Um, I'm not clear that's what this was. And I don't think anybody necessarily can be. That's that's one of the problems with this is I don't think you can look at this and see intent unless you are looking in a, a in a slightly malicious way. Um. I think you could wonder what the hell he was thinking, but that's different. Yeah. I I, think this is just, again, if you play enough hockey games, this is going to happen. It just is. And it doesn't mean that it's even necessarily, I mean, you're in control of your body. You're responsible for your body. It doesn't even necessarily mean it's his fault. My son's playing U9 right now, and um, when he was playing U7, so these are just like the little gaffers, you know, these are like the Timbits, mm-hmm. basically, and uh, Dad, me, uh, forgot his neck guard. His neck guard wasn't in the bag, and uh, and I sent him out to practice, and he's got his cage on, he's got everything. These are little kids. Nobody's, you know, and uh, a coach uh, was like right over, was over in like 45 seconds, and uh, he's like, he can't be out here without his neck guard. I was like, coach, to be honest, 
you know, he's got one. We'll have it next practice. He looked at me. He said, he cannot mm-hmm. be out here without a neck guard. And uh, <laughs> dad was in the bad books that day. Wyatt had to sit out. <laughs> I ripped home. I got it. Found his neck guard. He made the second half of practice. But the point was, he, he, it, there was no leeway. There was no relaxing yeah. the rules. Um, you mentioned TJ Oshie. I mean, he's in the business. Um, yeah. And so, and uh, there's nothing wrong with that. I mean, he, he, you know, he's he's obviously trying to sell his neck guards, but he was one of the first NHLers to put one on right after this. It's kind of an interesting sport, um, and, and hockey's not unique in this way. But there's a real culture around things. Um, you know, the visors is an example of that. Maybe neck guards is another example of that. Where I think that some players would argue that the, the visor impedes their ability to see the ice. That's why they didn't want to wear them until ultimately the NHLPA I think had to agree it was a good idea and they had to protect the players. Now they're mandatory. Uh, same thing with neck guards. I, I don't know if maybe some players don't like the look of it. Maybe some players don't like the feel of it. I don't know what it is. But can you see neck guards becoming mandatory over the next few years? I could see what happened with uh, with visors more likely mm-hmm. is that they get grandfathered in um, because hockey has always had to be dragged to safety. Yes. Right. Like it's and more more than maybe any other sport, um, even football, uh, maybe football is on the same level. You'd have to go deep into it. But hockey, there are still players out there, only a few who don't wear visors, don't have to and play with that elevated risk. Um, in a game where guys have been blinded, uh-huh. uh, there are, if you gave every player the choice tomorrow, how many would take off the visor? How many do you think? You think half of them would? I think a lot of them grew up with it and it would almost be weirder to take it off than to keep it on. Yeah. Right. Because they, they've, it's been long enough now that guys have grown up with it, but I think it's like the first time you ride your bike without a helmet, you're like, oh, this is more comfortable. Mm-hmm. It's not safer. But it's more comfortable. It's that's you get to be. Uh, how many would take off helmets entirely? Yeah, I think that'd be a harder conversation. But it's it's a non-zero number. It, 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 like if given the choice, because humans do pray. No one ever thinks a bad thing's going to happen to them, right? Um, and in hockey, visors have been brought in, and there are still fights, right? right? Despite visors, um, we've seen more uh, cut-proof socks. We've seen wrist guards. We've seen uh, shot blocking uh, protection down around the ankle, which is uncomfortable, but it's something that some guys wear. Guys can eventually get used to it, and they probably will, because imagine if you're the league, one, you're thinking about how how can we avoid the worst-case scenario for any one of our players? How is This was awful. Like This is, this is a young man losing his life in a, in a sport, and – it's it's an unbelievable tragedy that Adam Johnson didn't get to come home. Um, imagine if you're the NHL, this happening in an NHL game. Imagine the impact that would have on the league. Imagine the impact it would have on hockey with that many more cameras, yeah. with that many more eyeballs. Um, you have to avoid that. Yeah, if you can, you have to try to avoid that. And that's why talks are happening right now and the union is canvassing the players and they're going to eventually arrive at maybe it's only going to be a recommendation. It might only go that far. Or maybe they will grandfather neck guards in and you will see uh, a, an extra layer of protection. And then maybe this will never happen in an NHL game. Yeah. Hopefully it doesn't anyway. 
For people who don't know what that means, by the way, grandfather just means that if a rookie comes into the league, they've got to wear the neck guard and, and every year subsequent to that. But if you were in the league before the rule was implemented, you get to choose whether or not you'd wear that neck guard. Um, Jillian's in our live chat right now. Uh, we're talking to Bruce Arthur, uh, national columnist with the Toronto Star. Jillian says it's very scary to see a black hockey player arrested and charged in a country that, number one, is as racist as Britain can be. Uh, number two, where most people can't skate and have no experience playing sports on ice. Imagine if this is a jury trial. You could very likely have a jury of people who've never skated or seen a hockey game being asked to make a call, uh, which is an interesting point there from Jillian. Um, Bruce, I want to ask you about your – did you want to add to that? Well, if you look at the statement from the from the police, they said that they, they did consult some experts, which I presume means talking to people in the English uh, hockey league. Um, but I'd be really interested to know who they talked to and what they said. Because, again, I've talked to some of the smartest people I've ever met in hockey and asked them what happened here, and they – they don't know. They're not sure. They can't be sure. And even even on the case of recklessness, they're not sure it's reckless necessarily hmm. because they've seen a lot of hockey and these things can happen. Yeah. Uh, Bruce Arthur, a columnist with the Toronto Star. Uh, in just a second, I want to get into your recent column. Uh, really, really great column. Uh, just yesterday came out, uh, thestar.com. What will help ease the latest Mideast crisis? Well, it won't be... The internet, that in just a second. This conversation is made possible by Athabasca University. It's Canada's open university. And if you're looking for a new opportunity right now, you either want to learn more about a, a field, a career maybe, that's been catching your attention. That could be maybe AI. Uh, maybe it's HR. Uh, maybe you've always wanted to get involved in a research project. Something that's just like burning in your belly, but you don't have... Uh, the likely, I mean, it's just not possible. You just know you can't go to a brick-and-mortar university Monday through Friday from 9 to 3. It's not going to work with your schedule. You'd be a perfect fit for Athabasca University. You can learn more about the AU Advantage, how to apply, the financial supports that are available, and, of course, the opportunities that await by checking them out online today at AthabascaU.ca. Our friends at Friesen Brothers want to remind you that in 16 different Alberta communities, they are bringing you good food at great prices, making it more and more possible for you to get that family around the dinner table together. And they've got a big event coming up this Friday. That's the 17th of November as Charlie, their sourdough starter, is turning eight years old. That's right. Charlie is a natural culture crafted from simple ingredients, flour, and water. They feed Charlie every single day. That's their sourdough bakers that are doing that. And, of course, that ensures his enduring presence and enhances the unique quality of their bakery products. If you show up at a Friesen Brothers on November 17th, that's this Friday, they're going to be gifting free Friesen Brothers cinnamon spread when you purchase a sourdough loaf. Plus, all kids are going to get free balloons as we celebrate Charlie's birthday. You can learn more online at Friesen.com slash Charlie. And a big shout out to our friends at Eden Landscaping. Uh, you know that my wife and I partnered with them to bring our outdoor space to life. I love this. I was talking to Real Talker James yesterday, ran into him on the street, and he goes, hey, you know Eden Landscaping? I go, yeah. He goes, well, you know I'm in construction. I go, tell me more. He says, you know they're like the most highly regarded landscaper in the Metro Edmonton region. I said, why? He goes, well, they're able to implement top-shelf projects, but they're known for doing it at reasonable rates. I said, are you serious? He goes, yeah. I said, can I quote you on this? He goes, sure. 
So I'm doing it. James, thanks for being a friend of the show. Thanks for letting us know about your experience with Eden Landscaping. Ours was fantastic. They came in under budget and answered every single question that we had along the way, including how they were going to fix our drainage. It was an absolute nightmare. I won't bore you with the details. I'll just let you know that this spring, we're not worried about it anymore. You can get in touch with Mike and his team. Start the project with a conversation. Check out what the design renderings look like so they can go shovels in the ground this spring. You'll find Eden Landscaping online at landscapeedmonton.ca. Bruce Arthur, our guest this morning, a columnist with the Toronto Star, his piece out yesterday, November 14th. What will help ease the latest Mideast crisis? Well, it won't be the internet. Uh, Bruce, you address anti-Semitism in this piece. You address Islamophobia in this piece. Uh, what put this on your radar? What made this the top priority column for you this week? Most of us um, kind of living or interpreting or learning about uh, what's happening in the Israel-Gaza crisis. Um, it's the same way we kind of process everything. It's through a filter of the internet, um, which is always, it's never been an entirely reliable way to understand the world, right? There are absolutely pitfalls. It's something we should probably teach in schools if we don't already. My kids aren't quite old enough to be teach, taught internet literacy, I think, at this level, um, but I do it at home. Uh, this is This is a really dangerous world full of bad actors and the internet is more and more a front in these kind of wars. And that's one thing I noticed is especially, especially Twitter, you can call it X now, but it's Twitter, um, is that it was always a dangerous place, but the, the changes there and the way it's used and its relative importance when it comes to journalists, to pundits, to uh, other news gathering organizations, um, it has made for a more dangerous and I would argue more combustible um, recipe. Like there's just been a lot of stuff on there that has been less accurate than the internet has been in my lifetime uh, with one of the bigger crises we've seen in the last, I don't know, let's say 20 years. You, you open your piece talking about uh, this, this, what do you call it? Confrontation is an inadequate word, but basically this clash that happened at Concordia University, two different groups there uh, in earnest for people that haven't yet read your column or aren't aware of what happened there. Can you take us into that story? Okay. So this is a, there were, uh, and there was a Jewish group and there was a pro-Palestinian group at Concordia and Concordia is one of the universities. I mean, we are, we are facing a stress test of our multiculturalism and some of it's playing out at universities because we have a lot of kids from a lot of different places at places like Concordia, at York, at Toronto Metropolitan University. Um, and so this confrontation starts happening and people start yelling at each other. And that's going to happen because this is such this war, such as it is, is such a deep well of just this, I wrote it like howling trauma. Uh, and so the emotions are so high. And so they start yelling at each other. And this young girl yells at what turns out to be an adult uh, Jewish woman who doesn't go to the university. Um, and she calls her a vile slur of some kind. Now, I'm not here to say that one vile slur is necessarily better than the other, but I think they're different. It is different to call someone. Now, I don't know what words we can really use here, Ryan. You can use whatever you like. Um, people said that she called the Jewish woman, a kike, which okay. is clearly a vile slur. And 
there's a there's enough anti-Semitism kind of bursting into the open in Canada right now that that's not impossible. The young woman told the Montreal Gazette that what she said was cunt, which is again it it's it's a it's a vile misogynist slur. Um, but I think in the current environment, especially, there's a difference, and a lot of people were sure that this young woman said the first one, and. There, at the very least, I don't think you can be sure. But when you broadcast that, and this is far from the only example, it's a really small example, actually, in the grand scheme of things. If you're going to say that this college student used a vile ethnic slur, a slur like an anti-Semitic slur, you should really be sure. And people who retweeted that included not just ordinary people, it included journalists, it included notable politicians. Um, what if you're wrong, man? Yeah. Like, and this is happening all over because the internet has been incentivized. It's always been incentivized as an attention economy. Um, and what's happened, especially on Twitter, is now the attention economy is fundamentally different since Elon Musk took over. Like, not to bore everyone with like how Twitter works exactly, but it used to be that blue checks meant that who you were listening to on Twitter were exactly who they said they were. They were representatives of either celebrities or media outlets or whatever it was. You knew that that was the real person. They had been vetted. And those people were incentivized. Yeah, they were incentivized according to whatever their business model is. You could judge according to what you knew of those people or organizations. And when Elon Musk turned that into a paid venture, and some of the worst people on the internet, as far as I can tell, decided to pay $8 a month to the richest man in the world in order to get prioritized in the algorithm. What you saw was an incentivization of inflammatory content. And we've seen that play out not only uh, in terms of little things like the Concordia video. We've seen it play out in terms of uh, OSINT, right? Operational security and intelligence, like real life intelligence um, kind of interpretation. Right. There are there are real professionals who actually look at what happens in war zones and tell you what is verifiable and what is not. And they talk about how the environment is absolutely a sewer right now. There are so many different accounts that are misrepresenting what's happening. And that's up to and including Israeli ministers. Like an Israeli minister put out a video claiming that Palestinians, they claim to prove that Palestinians were faking injuries or casualties in Gaza, which is monstrous enough as it is, to be quite honest. The footage was from a Lebanese film from several years ago about Gaza. The director and the actors involved have gone out and said, this is what this is. The tweet, last I checked, was still up, hmm. right? And this isn't confined to the Israeli side of the conflict, right? We've seen we've seen stuff from the the pro-Palestinian side of the conflict, although I would say less at an official level, because it's not like a ton of pe people from Hamas are on Twitter every day. Um, but the level of trustability and the broken telephone that happens as a result of all this is it's just making everything worse. It's just making everything a lot worse. Like there was a video of kids at Mark Garneau uh, High School in Toronto. And if you if you watch the video to my ear, what they yell is, Trudeau, Trudeau, you can't hide. Um, and then they rhyme it with genocide, right? We, we charge you um, with genocide, yeah. We charge you with genocide. Um, and a, one of the most prominent Jewish organizations in the country, CJA, um, heard 
something different. They heard Judah instead of Trudeau. Again, you better be sure. And they eventually deleted the tweet. But like uh, people want to hear what they want to hear, I think, in a lot of these videos. There's a rule that the shorter the video of stuff like this, the more carefully you should probably be with it, the more carefully it's edited, right? Um, but this is the incentive of Twitter. This is what we talked about with the Johnson Petgrave hit among certain uh, accounts on Twitter who are incentivized to post rage bait, racism, whatever it is. And those are the ones that are accusing uh, Petgrave of murder. But this is happening in an Israeli-Palestinian uh, conflict, which is so hot, which is such a hot button and traumatic issue for so many people. I talk to Jewish friends right now, and they're, I, it's hard to even say just how terrified they are. And I talk to Muslim and Arab friends, and it's hard to they 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 see like the the other side of the coin and Islamophobia, which is well established in this country, rising up again. Um, and it's like watching people cheer for their sports teams in far from an honest manner. And it's making everything worse. It really is dispiriting. Yeah. And and people like people chasing the retweets and likes and wanting to be first and wanting to pounce on things. And there's mm -hmm. there's virtually I mean, you see little things like these these tiny little measures that, that, that are virtually maybe not completely insignificant, but somewhat where some of the social media. So, I mean, uh, Twitter among them, I think, will say, like, before you retweet an article, if you haven't read it, if you haven't clicked on the link, it will say something like, do you want to read the article before you retweet mm -hmm. it? <laughs> That's just such a yeah. basic thing where it's like, but it, but you realize that what they know through their algorithms and through all their intelligence is is that people are passing along and amplifying information. And, and all it takes, like you said, is one big account. You know, you get some rage farmer in Canada or, or the United States or somewhere else that has a half a million or a couple million followers to amplify something that was small before. Somebody could be repurposing or repackaging video out of Syria. I'm not saying all video is this, but some of it has proven to be such. Yep. Uh, video, a, a, a Syrian child crying uh, eight years ago and saying, look at this Palestinian child in Gaza. And then all of a sudden it's amplified to millions of people and then it becomes truth in quotes. I mean, mm -hmm. let me quote you from your piece. Uh, these are dangerous times when media jumps too fast and misses, you know, when uh, when politicians or institutions do the same, when facts are murky and blood is boiling and huge engines of social media and public communication are designed to inflame people, there are consequences. You write, this is a howling war of deep trauma on both sides. Empathy, moral consistency, accuracy should be the rule. But what happens when we run short of people or institutions to trust? We are on the way to finding out, you write. I mean, I guess that's kind of part of it. I hate to dismiss it or come across as though I'm throwing up my hands and saying, what are we going to do about it? But this is what happens when everybody has a platform. I bet when your colleagues at the star on the journalism side, on the reporting side, had a scoop, there was probably the rule of two sources before we run mm -hmm. with it, not just put it out there to make sure we get it there before post media. Right. There's been a degradation in the media sphere because the business is suffering. Right. Um, and that's happened over years. And you can determine who you trust in the media landscape in Canada. I think I know who I generally trust. Um, but not everyone is operating on the same good faith basis. Not everyone is putting the same resources into it. And the internet, you're right, Ryan, 
what's that line from Seinfeld? People, they're the worst. Um, when when you when you create an attention economy and you reduce the standards of accuracy, and in fact turn those standards on their heads, right? Where the only important thing is how many people share the content, not how accurate the content is. When you create that. It's not even that people will believe things that are patently untrue. That's a part of it. We saw that during COVID, those engines cranked into overdrive. And still, like, people who who profoundly believe that vaccines are still incredibly dangerous to people, um, they're still cranking out content. It's just fewer people care, I think. Um, but we saw the dangers of misinformation that we see that we see them every day. It's the filter through a lot of how the world is interpreted by people. But it's not just believing things that are wrong. It's the the pollution and the elimination of the idea that there is a way to figure out what's right. That the the idea of truth, the idea that there is a truth you can arrive at. If you talk to people who have covered especially the Russian state, but it's not obviously limited to Russia. Um, Kerry Kasparov, the former chess champion who is an outspoken critic of the regime, has said, like, the purpose of propaganda is to annihilate the idea of truth itself. Right. And we've seen it from the Trump administration as well. Flood the zone with shit was uh, Steve Bannon's term for it. Yeah. And that's it feels like we have less reliability than we've ever had. Like Google search results are worse than they've ever been because of some of the changes Google's made to their algorithm. Twitter is being turned into a far-right misinformation network by Elon Musk. That is clearly the aim of the project, and he said as much. Facebook has taken the reins off in terms of political advertisements going into the 2024 election in the United States, where what politicians say will no longer be fact-checked or regulated in any way. Um, you can see this across. There's there's a lot of pretend media that are incentivized to lie. Um and this is happening everywhere. And so one thing that we've seen, especially as because the Israel-Gaza war touches so many people in so many places, whether Jewish, whether Arab, whether Muslim, whether you know people who are Jewish or Arab or Muslim, uh, whether you just have an opinion on the conflict, um, that's when you really see the effects of the degradation of our shared informational infrastructure. And by the way, whenever somebody in this country says defund the CBC, you should read it in this context, is that as newspapers, I work for a newspaper, I've been working for newspapers for 23 years, the business has gotten worse in 23 years. And I don't know where it's going to be in five years, much less 10. Um, you're starting to see the same thing, cutbacks in terms of local news at the television level in this country. Big because time. the big companies that are doing that don't want to spend the money. So what's left in terms of a shared information ecosystem, which is a protection for every citizen against corruption when when properly executed, against corruption, against misinformation, against the stuff that pulls societies apart. The CBC is the closest thing. We can all talk about the CBC. The CBC is not perfect. We can spend all day talking about problems that the CBC has. But the idea of defunding the CBC because you don't like what they say, that will do irreparable harm to this country it will yeah. if if executed the way pierre poilievre says he wants to do it and when we talk about not being able to trust sources of information in an environment where there are more people who are trying to mislead people than we've probably ever had before where there is incentives for those people to do that 
when you see politicians take a reflexively anti-media stance, you may like it because of your ideological priors, but societally it is so damaging. And the, take a look at the stuff that the conservatives are doing with one headline. As far as I know, I think it's one headline that the CBC ran about the uh, hospital bombing, right? Where it was initially attributed to Israel. And then, no, it turns out it might have been Islamic Jihad. And there's actually still some question as to what exactly happened. Lots of hospitals have been bombed since then, by the way. Um, but when that happened, there was an Associated Press story with a mixed byline on the CBC's website that stayed up a little too long. And the conservatives are basically asking Catherine Tate about it in hearings. This stuff is dangerous. And the degradation of our shared information ecosystem is probably inevitable and it's already happened and it's probably not going to be able to be stopped. But it's something that we should really pay attention to yeah. because that's one of the things that binds us together as a society. And when you talk about how people in this country are divided, if we can't agree on shared facts, we're going to get more divided than we are now, man. Yeah, I don't know if you were if this story was on your radar. I suspect it may have been. But a black guy for the CBC a little bit more locally in Alberta, uh, when two of their like reputable reporters, uh, both of them friends of mine. So it's, it's it's a it's a shitty story to talk about, quite frankly. But um, and I've not talked to them about it specifically, but they ran with a story that basically at its premise was the premier or somebody close to the premier spoke with crown prosecutors mm -hmm. trying to influence the prosecution or at least charges that had been laid in relation to that Coots border blockade. Mm -hmm. um, and um, the the uh, the uh, assertion was that there was an email out there from the premier or from the premier's office or from the, the someone on the premier senior staff to a crown prosecutor or two crown prosecutors um, attempting to influence that scenario. The, the premier and her team denied it. Absolutely. Uh, crown prosecutors dragged into it uh, were obviously they're they're in a tough spot. You don't see typically crown prosecutors in front of mics very often. Um, especially when things are are far from being determined, in other words, when they're when, when they're in place, so to speak. And ultimately, at the end of the day, CBC first um, sort of like amended the story and and edited it to clarify that they had not seen the email. Which at that point, everyone kind of went oof. And then yeah. ultimately, um, it came out that there had not been an email. And I've spoken with people high up in. Crown prosecutors' offices that that are vehement about this that there is no email, there was no email, and uh, the CBC in Alberta uh, wound up with a ton of egg on its face. And and as our thumbnail read when we talked about it on Real Talk a few months ago, it was a big win for Danielle Smith. It was Danielle Smith one CBC yeah. zero, and it gave and it fueled that fire for in in particular the partisan critics, you know, conservatives, partisan critics of the CBC to say. See, right? This was right before the provincial election. The CBC is clearly trying to influence the outcome of the election. We should defund the CBC. Um, and, and that's not to say, and I'm not here to carry water for the CBC. All I'm saying is that that was human error. Uh, it was a lack of judgment by two typically uh, really diligent professionals um, I don't know why that happened the way that it did, but for that to be presented as an indictment of the entire network, of the entire team of journalists, and of essentially the right to exist or the importance of the CBC in Canada, I thought was ludicrous. But we're talking about quick wins, and we're, we're talking about you know own goals 
And that was a situation that was and still is, to be honest with you, with you Bruce, uh, pretty tough to watch. Well, the pro- and you're right. Everything you just said was correct, right? Um, the problem with trying to get things right is it's hard. Mm-hmm. It's hard and it costs money. And sometimes you screw up. Even the best sometimes screw up. Yeah. Um, because the more you learn about how complicated things are in the real world, the more you realize that you there's a lot of things to get wrong. That's one of the freeing things about being pretend media. You don't even have to pretend to care about it, right? And it's a lot cheaper to produce. And that's what's happening in this country. That particular um, incident, I mean, that's the thing is when you are dealing with people who are reflexively anti-honest media, and I think the CBC for all its faults is still honest media in this country, you can't, you have to be more careful. You have to be more diligent. You have to be absolutely sure because you're right. Messing up that detail on a story in which Daniel Smith, correct me if I'm wrong, had spoken in the in public about wanting to influence prosecutors in Alberta. I mean, she actually did go on the record and say that she has spoken with prosecutors and then she kind of walked that back. But she did say it. She said it. Right. And so the, the problem the CBC had is that they thought they had a detail that if that's not in the piece, the rest of the piece stands, right? Yeah. Um, like, this is the problem with trying to be accurate. But it's also, if you zoom out a little bit, this is the problem with media in general, is that the truth is expensive and difficult, and lies are free and easy. Hmm. Um, and that's one of the reasons that we've seen news organizations, along with their inability to handle the internet, retreat over the last I would say probably the entirety of my career. Maybe it's a coincidence, the last 23 years. Um, and it is, the problem you get is what's going to replace it, right? I, I, I've i seen a lot of things in newspaper chains at the newspaper I'm at and the newspaper chains I, the chain I used to work for, which it's awful management. Of course I have. Um, I'm not going to say that newspapers have done everything right. But what replaces them when they're gone? There are lots of really great young and small independent uh, shops opening up across the country. Um, Like there's really good stuff being done. We're still making journalists in the society. We just don't have a lot of places to put them. Yeah. But what replace? there is nothing that we have seen, as far as I know, anywhere that replaces a daily metropolitan newspaper in terms of covering the business of a city. And the things that matter in a city. I just haven't seen anything that does the same. You got like you've got. OK, like look at us as an example. Right. I mean, I'm not going to compare us to the Toronto Star, or the CBC. Um, we're doing a great job doing what we do. But I Absolutely. can't. Af- I, but I can't afford to pay a veteran journalist uh, to spend all day, every day making relationships and digging up scoops at City Hall. I can't pay somebody else <laughs> to be down at the Alberta legislature every single day. Uh, we'll do our best. We have an amazing group of patrons, of Patreon supporters, and, and we're finding different ways to allocate those funds to make the show better. So so we can maybe fund somebody to do a long-form piece, a long-term investigation into a story and dig it up, like like off the top of my head, like the Narwhal does or the Tai or mm-hmm. other independents. Alberta Views does some of that stuff. But that takes money. You're paying a professional, a journalist with experience, and th- that's you know, looking to feed their family um, for two or three months worth of work or six months worth of work. I mean, that that's not something really that the small grassroots startups like us 
can fund. I mean, it's incredibly important, I think, to have the big dogs and to have the independents. And we're seeing the lands. I mean, it's a very dynamic landscape. Obviously, something like what we're doing would have been impossible five years ago, for sure, 10 years ago. Um, but at the same time, there is value in having publicly funded journalism. I believe so. And I've always had, a, I, I, not always, that's not true, but I've, I've had a bit of an ax to grind against the CBC. I never liked when they were compared when I was part of big corporate media as well. I didn't like when they were stacked up against us because it felt like an uneven playing field. Um, I, I've got I've got my issues with it. Uh, I see some interesting comments here in the live chat. Like, let me quote Ken here who said, he said, I'd be more than happy to see the CBC reduced to a news function, reduce, uh, removing entertainment, opinions, and analysis uh, with no advertising. He says the reporters do excellent work in the local Alberta Bureau. Um, I mean, I go actually, one thing about that, by the way. Yeah, go ahead. There's very little opinion on the CBC site. There, you, you take a look at how many of them are actually columnists. It's analysis. Someone yeah. like Aaron Wary, my friend who works for the CBC, who I used to work with in sports. Aaron writes stuff from his point of view, but it's not nearly as opinionated as the stuff you see from actual columnists at newspapers. It's like, and and there's no one like that. Jake, Jason Markusoff, because does a great job in Alberta about that. But Jason is not out there throwing bombs. It is very different. The CBC, if anything, bends over backwards to avoid too much opinion and too much what to the of being accused of bias and there are people in that organization who absolutely are terrified of being of being called too centrist of being called too left wing yeah that's a real dynamic at the cbc yeah hey let me ask you this in closing but we've kept you way longer than we asked you for and we sure appreciate that but you knew it was coming bruce because it oh, no had, problem it had been a year since we've had you on so i was like Geez, how has it been a year since Bruce Arthur has been on Real Talk? Let me ask you this in closing, though. Johnny, show my screen here for a second. You've got 150 some odd. You've got 152,000 Twitter followers. Look at that. Um, but I notice you're not ponying up the eight bucks. I'm not ponying up the eight bucks. You don't have a blue check mark. And you and I both know that even though 150,000 followers is a great reach, it's not. Your tweets are not reaching as many people as they used to because you're not paying yep. the measly eight bucks a month, just like me. I know why I'm not. Why are you not? I mean, I think Elon Musk is one of the worst people in the world, and I'm not giving him $8. Um, I also think that asking people to pay for a site that used to be free, sorry, that's how newspapers did it, man. It didn't work for us. It's not going to work for you. Um, again, what what's happening with Twitter is Elon Musk spent $45 billion on what is essentially an ideological project. Uh, and it's an ideological project that has seen elevated rises in hate speech on the platform and misinformation on the platform. And the richest man in the world is the kind of person who believes in and promotes conspiracy theories. I'm not giving that man my money. Um, and so I'm spending actually a little more time on Blue Sky right now um, of all the different options. Blue Sky feels like Twitter did maybe 10 years ago. Uh, it, it feels small, but it feels a lot more organic and a lot more friendly. Um, whereas Twitter, I think eventually Twitter is going to, to stumble along into a place where it's, uh, basically a meme, a right-wing meme site. Uh -huh. Um, the question is how long it takes everyone to realize that it's no longer a trustable place to be. I'm still there because I have a reach there and because I can still kind of interact with people in a way that I want to there. Yeah. But man, I'm spending less time there than I ever have. Well, I'll tell you. 
Some of our dough every month goes to subscribe to the Toronto Star, and we're proud to do that. It's on our long list of uh, of sites and, and sources of journalism that we're proud to pay for. Uh, it's always awesome to catch up with you, Bruce. I really respect your perspective. You write like really nobody else does in the country, um, and we're grateful for your time this morning. By the way, joining us from the West Coast today, thanks for waking up early. We appreciate it. Ryan, it's absolutely my pleasure. And I and while we're doing this, I just say I, I really appreciate your show, man. I think it fills a really important void. I think you do really great work. Um, and I I always enjoy being on. Thanks, Bruce. That means a lot. You can read Bruce Arthur's work at uh, thestar.com. That's, of course, the Toronto Star. And you can follow him on Twitter at Bruce underscore Arthur. Did you ever consider, um, obviously, you're an entrepreneur like Johnny. We're, we're, we're mm-hmm. grateful to have you as a team member here, the aren't technical producer of the show. <laughs> uh, yeah, we are all these days, aren't we? But also, of course, Infamous Entertainment. You run your own business. Hey, you, thanks you, for the plug. You hustle in the evenings <laughs> um, and, and on weekends. Did you? Uh, so reach is important to you. Your audience is important sure. to you. But you don't pay the eight bucks a month for the blue check. No. And I, I, I we remember I tried it out. Yeah. I tried it out. I, I tried the whole blue check mark thing for yeah. a bit and then I took it away. Um. Yeah, I don't. It, it, I I agree with Bruce. the The whole landscape of Twitter X, I'm never going to call it that, uh, uh, is just that you have to wade through so much now. And it, now, when I see a blue check, I immediately think it's someone who isn't trustworthy. Yes, because you check their profile and they've got a hundred followers. And or zero. They post a thousand things a day and they get two likes on each of them. I said a while ago, blue is, checks are the new red flags. It is really bad. And I agree with Bruce. You look at like, I know it's not a news site, but we all use it as a tool, especially if we're in media, radio, broadcasting, TV. Everyone checks X Twitter in the morning. They check uh, what's trending. And uh, other than what's trending to lead you to actual news articles, the feed is just, it's garbage now. Yeah. You, you, I used to check the feed and it was like a news feed, right? And yeah. now it's just, it's a lot of propaganda. It's a lot of hate. And that's that's not me being, you know, on the left or the right. That's I think there's stuff, like Bruce said, on both sides that is just, it's way out there. Well, nothing's and, and fact nothing's checked. being checked. Right? Nothing's like, being checked at all. Jill quotes Bruce here where she says, yeah, right there. He nailed it. The truth is expensive, but lies are free and easy. I like this comment from Leslie, and I and I agree. We, we can hash this out. We can debate this. Uh, about the, We didn't intend on talking about the role of the CBC, but that's fine. It's real to do whatever we want. Yeah, right? go ahead. Uh, Leslie says the CBC is an important venue to showcase Canadian talent, filmmaking, actors, and they do an excellent job. She says, I like that the CBC includes a variety of resources other than just the news. Leslie, I'm kind of, in a way, I'm inclined to agree with you there. Um, You you know, part of me was like with the success of shows like Schitt's Creek, uh, Mr. D, like there's been shows that have been really successful and and, and Schitt's Creek goes on and wins like all these Emmys and like, you know, sort of shines the spotlight back on the CBC and you go, like, does Eugene Levy really need CBC funding to develop? And then and then I kind of, to be honest, I changed my tune on that a little bit, but I, 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 I do agree that there is a role and it's important to have a national broadcaster, like Leslie said, to showcase Canadian talent, mm-hmm. Canadian filmmaking. I think it's important to have, um, you know, like it's getting to the point where newspapers, Bruce was talking about it, big TV networks are getting like they can't afford or they choose not to afford, for example, to have local news. You'll mm-hmm. see some things like election coverage won't be broadcast. They'll, they'll live stream it on their website, but sure. they won't broadcast it. On, on you know uh, through their satellites type idea and 
These are choices that these for-profit networks are making because they see it to be unprofitable. And a lot of the, especially local news that happens, is only happening because they are mandated to do so mm -hmm. if they want to keep their license, right? The CRTC says if you want to have a license, if you want to be able to broadcast like, I don't know, The Bachelor or Family Feud. I'm so out of touch if I think that those are the shows. <laughs> no, Bachelor is still popular. Still on. Yeah, but, still but, on. Like, if you still want to be able to broadcast those, yeah. right, and, and sell advertising on those, which can be lucrative, then you must also produce an hour a day or whatever it is. Or It used to be when I was in the business, 15 hours a week mm -hmm. of local content. Mm -hmm. And so these networks, these stations locally kind of begrudgingly produce 15 hours a week. And I'm not taking swipes. I mean, these are a lot of no. our good friends that work in the business and they work their asses off. But like it's getting less and less impactful, less and less solid, less and less funding mm -hmm. where it used to be. I mean, when I started, it was like out of the movies. I remember my first night in the big city in Edmonton, <laughs> and it was five minutes before we went live at six. And then the, the makeup artists are in there working on the anchors and the printers are working and the editors are screaming around and the yeah. camera guys are. And it was like action and hubbub and excitement. Yeah. And now it's like one person. Yeah, I know. The cameras are run by robots. You can see their hand on Everybody's the Everybody's losing their jobs. Putting up their own articles. Yes. And, they're yeah, running, you know, anchors are running their own teleprompters. People are going to say, oh, the poor anchors have to run their own teleprompters. No, but, it's, but it's just indicative. That's a job that's disappeared, number yeah, it's, one. It's the squeeze of media. But I, I think back when I was younger, remember like sitting down and watching the news? With your parents or your grandparents, or I remember my my great aunt and uncle. Yeah, it was a thing. It was a thing. Five six o'clock at night, before or after dinner, you would sit down and you'd watch the news and you'd see hardworking people out in the field delivering content, trying to give you the information. And now all the trust in that is gone. And it's like Bruce said, it's it's teams now. If you're watching CBC, you're too far left. If you're watching Fo Fox News, you're too far right. Whatever it is, and I, I agree with him. Like we still need print whether it's online or not, because I feel like that's still the medium that people have the most amount of trust in when someone puts in investigative reporting, puts it all down in words, in writing, with sources. But even that is getting eroded away. Like even with Twitter, how they're not like, you can't even see that the title of the article just anymore. photos now. They're just yeah. hiding the information. Yeah. It's... Yeah, it's ridiculous. Uh, you can let us know what you think about this. I'm sure that that at least something. Gosh, we covered a lot of ground with Bruce. Um, you know, it feels like yesterday's show, but it was still this morning when we were talking about uh, that horrific scenario in, in the British Elite Hockey League, the yeah, death that's... of Adam Johnson. Um, I saw a lot of comments on there that Tug. we didn't get to. And, and, and we apologize sort of for that. Um, but but uh, I, I say in all seriousness, a lot of great observations on our live chat, just how you're thinking your way through on this. Um, and whether or not it was appropriate for, for these, these arrests to be made, these manslaughter charges, what this means, bigger picture for the sport of hockey. It's all this bad. is something, you know, we'll, we'll, we'll obviously follow that story. It's all bad. It's, and, and like I said, I feel like the arrest of this guy. Tragedy on tragedy. It's tragedy heaped on tragedy. And, but at the same time, Adam Johnson's family's going, we want accountability. Yeah. Like if it was my brother that was killed yeah. um, and I'm watching that video that we were showing, um, and obviously we didn't show the aftermath, which is horrific. And I just feel for Adam. I just feel for the panic he must have felt. It's just yeah. terrible for his teammates who witnessed this. They will be traumatized for the rest of their life. The medical workers. Um, I but, think Erica but, like, had the best. If it was comment. my brother, I would be 
furious oh, of course. and damn straight yeah. I would want somebody arrested. And that's why right? you, that's why you can't blame people for wanting to go the distance. What but did Erica say? Erica had the best comment. She said the kick was intentional but the death was an accident. And that's what I think happened here. Uh-huh. This guy I I believe and I've watched some of his other work on the ice. I believe he may have been trying to just stop him from get. He he knew he was too far past. He wanted to stop him, stop the play from getting by him. Did he want to drop kick him to the throat and kill him? Not no. a chance. Not and, a chance. Does anyone make that decision in a split second? Not a chance. No. But no. there was some, not malice, but you know, he made a stupid mistake. He raised his leg too high, but nobody, no professional sports athlete, is trying to murder someone on the not ice. Not a chance. So I don't. I don't see any resolution to this in the courts or outside where everyone's going to be satisfied and justice is no. going to be served it's not going to happen it's going to be horrible no matter what the outcome is i agree well said justin uh, says a well-informed populace with facts from unbiased trusted sources is so important the world is more connected uh than ever yet we're more divided and facts are shared less and less 100 percent right 100% right. Um, hey, we talk about media outlets and, and other sources of journalism that we're proud to support and, and we're proud to partner with. And I just wanted to mention, I've, I've already said the name, but Alberta Views, um, you had, uh, if, if you are a regular here on Real Talk, an opportunity to hear from Dr. Ian Urquhart just last week. That was on November 9th when he joined us, Professor Emeritus out of the U of A with like a 30 plus year history uh, in oil and gas. He's an expert on renewables and he's an author of uh, a piece in the November issue of Alberta Views talking about the, the wind and solar moratorium. Just an absolutely fascinating conversation. If you haven't seen it, I wanted to put that on your radar. That was the November 9th episode of Real Talk. And I wanted to remind you as well, if you go to albertaviews.ca, uh, it's the magazine for engaged citizens with the promo code AVRJ. Just think Alberta Views, Ryan Jesperson, AVRJ. You can subscribe for 50% off. That's 20 bucks a year for 10 issues delivered in print to your door. Two bucks an issue. Unbelievable. You're not going to find a better deal. The promo code is AVRJ. I encourage you to subscribe today at albertaviews.ca. I'm going to get to an email, uh, this one from Michael, that that resonated with us. Uh, I don't 100% agree with it, but that's totally fine. Uh, it's a four-page email, so I'm not going to read the whole thing. Uh, but Michael's taken real issue with what Charles Adler had to say yesterday, and he has some interesting comments on the Israel-Hamas war. And I'm going to get to that, plus an email from Karen about our support of the flag sponsorship program at the Juno Beach Center. I'm going to get to both of those in just a second. But, you know, every Wednesday we have a chance, courtesy of our friends at Tourism Jasper, to take a look at what's happening in Jasper National Park. And there is a big announcement this week. As a matter of fact, tomorrow we're excited to let you know that Marmot Basin is open for the season. That's right. Coming up on November 16th, that's tomorrow, Thursday, Marmot Basin officially opens for the year and they've got some amazing things happening out there including a brand new ski lift that's right the knob quad is open now this is a fixed grip quad chair with conveyor loading so the kids aren't going to get nervous first time skiers aren't going to get nervous this is the next gen of ski lifts uh, taking you to an unload elevation of more than 2500 meters it gives access to the cirque which is unbelievable skiing Uh, its newest open expert terrain is going to be easier as well as access to the peak so even if you've known marmot basin and have been out there for years you're going to have a completely different experience with this new knob quad now one of the 
beautiful things about Marmot Basin is that it's got the highest base elevation of all Canadian ski areas. You hear me say that? Higher base elevation than anybody else in Canada at almost 1,700 meters, which means the ski chalet at the base offers amazing views of surrounding mountain ranges. It also means that their snow is going to be better in early season than anywhere else. It's also super family-friendly. They've got a lot of family-friendly programming and infrastructure, including ski clubs and an on-hill childcare program from Fridays to Sundays, which means that mom and dad can get out and enjoy the mountain while the kids are supervised in good care. There's also a really nice even split between different ski levels at Marmot Basin. Of the 91 runs out there, 30% are rated for novice, 30% for intermediate, 20% for advanced, and 20% for experts. So everybody's going to be happy with their Marmot experience. And there's also two terrain parks. So don't forget about that as well if jumps are your thing. Johnny, are you into the big jumps? You like into the big rodeos? Oh, I love those kickers. Yeah, you do, bud. Plus, you've got multiple webcams that monitor conditions out there, which makes it even easier to ensure that you're going to have a perfect day out there. It's just a 20-minute drive, a scenic drive, from the town of Jasper. But if you want to check out the mountain without even leaving the comfort of your bed in the cabin capital of Canada, you can check out their webcams. They're stationed at multiple areas, upper, mid, and lower mountain, plus a 360-degree high-def webcam that points out cool landmark mountains and features as well. You can find it all, plus learn about some of the escape card deals they have making skiing and snowboarding more affordable for families than ever before i know that's super important to virtually everybody these days check them out online at skimarmot.com congratulations to our friends at marmot basin on opening day that's tomorrow thursday november 16th again skimarmot.com so we get an email from michael yesterday and um and the subject line catches my attention because it says real talk and Adler need to do better and be better. <laughs> and I went, okay. So I open it up and I appreciate this from Michael. Uh, he says on the slant of Adler and real talk, Charles joined us on yesterday's show. If you missed it, you can check it out. He says, Charles Adler ventures dangerously close to Zionism with his comments. Uh, Zionism says Michael. And by the way, I'm not going to like jump in on the email all the way here. I'm going to read it. Uh, and, um, and I know that some of you will, this will resonate with you. Others will be infuriated. Uh, but that's kind of not the point. Real talk is real talk. And this is a show driven by audience contribution. Michael says, uh, Zionism is anti-Semitism. It places Jews all around the world in danger. And it's an extremist position with extremist policies. Uh, you have devout Zionists in the States calling on the Jews participating in Palestinian rallies, Nazis, you have devout Zionists in the Israeli government saying that there are only terrorists in Gaza, even going so far as to call out journalists who covered the events of October 7th, terrorists. He says you have Zionists in the States getting Jewish organizations shut down for voicing their support of Palestinians and speaking against the actions of Israel. Zionists in the Israeli government openly trying to reform Hitler, talk about how the Nazis were not all so bad. Uh, you have the Israeli government making laws to shoot protesters in their own country. He says, how many men, women, and children, how many people, how many UN workers, how many journalists does Charles need to see be murdered by Israel before he can call out the state? He says, nothing of Israel's actions have even been about targeting Hamas. It has been only about causing the most damage to Palestinians. You can see this in the actions of the past month in Israel, in East Jerusalem, in the West Bank, even in the Armenian quarter. Every hospital bombed. 
their own propagandists fully admitting they've been flat out lying. Israeli actions no different than at the height of organized crime eras in New York City. He says to Adler's comment yesterday around Jeremy Corbyn, we talked about Jeremy Corbyn's interaction with talk show host Piers Morgan, how Piers Morgan asked Corbyn 14 different times, can you call Hamas a terrorist organization? And Corbyn refused to answer. Adler says, quote, because if you're not willing to say that Hamas is a terror organization, you are no longer worthy of democratic dialogue. He says the exact same could be said if you're not willing to say that the IDF Israeli army, essentially, is a terror organization. You're no longer worthy of democratic dialogue. If you're not willing to say that Israel is a terrorist state, you are no longer worthy of democratic dialogue. If Adler cannot say those things as well, says Michael, then he has a very large problem. He says far, far too many are willing to ignore and worse, celebrate the actions of Israel and the IDF. And Charles saying that from the river to the sea is anti-Semitic He says when it's not, what it is, is exceptionally telling of Charles and his position. He should really educate himself, says Michael. And Michael goes on to provide a ton of sources and a ton of positions and references that support his position. And Michael, we appreciate that. Don't take the work you've put into it lightly, but it would take us two hours to go through this all. I want you to know that we've read it and that it resonates with us and it helps help us in in a more deep way understand this issue. So we thank you for that, Michael. He says Israel's actions for 75 years have put Jews around the world at risk from trying to create an ethno state and speak for the entirety of the religion. I'm trying to discipline myself to not jump in all over the place, but Jews around the world will tell you it's not just a religion, but I'm sure you know that. He says a mistake was made 75 years ago with the creation of Israel. Israel, whose existence depends on and is predicated on the subjugation and occupation of Palestinians and their lands. The countries who signed on to that action 75 years ago need to come together and fix their mistake and admit that every death, mutilation, hardship in that time by anyone in that region is in part due to their actions, Michael says. Jewish members have lived in the region for thousands of years, and no one except actual anti-Semites and some members of Hamas are calling for them to be removed. I don't know which members of Hamas aren't, but he says, yes, some Jews are going to have to be displaced during the fixing of this mistake. Those who are living in homes or on land as a result of Palestinians being forced out should themselves be forced out. And the land and the homes returned. This doesn't mean they have to leave the region. Many Jews may choose to leave the region entirely, and that's a choice they're being offered. A privilege they will be afforded. Many of the current Jewish population holds dual citizenships, passports from other countries, and only relocated because they were promised land and a home at the expense of Palestinians living there. There are Jewish movements within Israel calling for a singular state, even Orthodox Jews who have lived beside and with Palestinians for thousands of years, who have received beatings from Israeli forces for displaying the Palestinian flag. Michael goes on to say, I hope that I've provided you with enough people, enough organizations, enough references that you could reach out to to have actual real conversations around the issue do better be better that from michael there was a piece of michael's email that i unintentionally scanned over now i want to revisit he says there's only ever been one solution and he says the dissolvement of israel and the formation of a single secular state he says thankfully some are calling from such are calling for such actions already that will 
never happen. Never happen for about a million reasons. But that will never happen. And this show, I just want to reference what Michael says. And, and sometimes we want to just read an email that, that, that an audience member sends in and just let it sit and, and let it resonate with you. You think about it. We think about it. But sometimes I also want to respond to a couple of the things that have been said. And, and Michael's saying, I hope I've provided you with enough people or organizations you could reach out to to have actual real conversations. People have short memories. And maybe that includes Michael. I don't know. But I had somebody yesterday reach out on Twitter. If you follow me, you probably saw me respond where they wondered if Real Talk was ever going to make a choice to actually platform Palestinian voices. And within the last week or two, I just want to remind you of two incredible guests that we've had on the show that I recommend you take the time to hear out. One of them was human rights attorney Allegra Pacheco, who joined us live from Bethlehem. This was on November 2nd, and you can find that episode on our YouTube channel or wherever you get your podcasts. Uh, she said that the international community, she argues, needs to call for an immediate ceasefire between Israel and Hamas. Uh, based on her extensive experience in the region, uh, her CV, her resume, is, is almost without parallel. Uh, we were thrilled to book her on the show. Uh, she asserted that there will be another Hamas in 20 years, no matter what Israel accomplishes here, even if Israel were able to eradicate, eliminate Hamas, there will be another Hamas in 20 years. That was a powerful statement from an incredible person. That was Allegra Pacheco, who joined us from Bethlehem on November 2nd. And then if you missed it, on November 8th, six days after that, Nizreen Baker joined us. She's a filmmaker. And we were talking about her new documentary, Arab Women Say What? But of course, we spent the majority of our time talking about this conflict. And she pointed out, quote, if we talk about the Palestinian issue, it's immediately taken as anti-Semitism. And she encouraged us to broaden our thinking and to be able to speak courageously and to seek to understand what's happening. She specifically commented on that from the river to the sea comment, that chant that was delivered at a rally in Calgary, where, as you likely know, one of the event organizers, one of the rally organizers was arrested. And Nizreen Baker comments on that specifically uh, when she joins us on the November 8th episode of Real Talk. You can find both of those wherever you get your podcasts. And of course, you can find them on YouTube as well. We're committed to having real conversations. We're committed to having uncomfortable conversations. And we welcome your feedback, like Michael's, to talk at ryanjesperson.com. I want to get to Karen's in just a second because it's a wonderful, uh, as my buddies call it, with big smiles on their face, a praise report from Karen who was called into action after she heard our Remembrance Day episode. That was on Friday, lest we forget. But first, I wanted to remind you that Real Talk doesn't happen without the support of partners like our friends at Kubi Renewable Energy. And I've been showing off their Instagram account for the last while for good reason. They've made a couple new hires at Kubi and one of their creators team members is just killing it with drone footage really excited about the opportunity to see some of kubi's teamwork 
see them in action. This is the Windermere, Windermere Fire Hall project that we're showing you right now. Look at the, the curves and the undulations of that roof. The entire roof covered in solar panels. It's Canada's first net zero fire hall, and it would not be a reality if it wasn't for Kubi's involvement. It shows you not just their professionalism, their attention to detail, but also their capabilities. There's nothing that they can't do. If you want to get a free solar quote today for residential, commercial, agricultural, industrial, you name it, you can get it today at kubienergy.ca. And we also want to shout out our friends at Complete Care Restoration. I know for some of you, you've got Complete Care Restoration on speed dial 780-454-0776. Or just remember, completecarerestoration.ca just in case fire or flood ever strikes i mean they'll tell you they hope that they hope to never hear from you they hope that you never call them uh, they don't want to see disaster strike but if it does they'll get you back on your feet but one of the focuses i want to take today is their amazing attention to detail on construction and renovation projects for some of you there's no fire or flood there's no mold as far as you know there's no asbestos as far as you know you just need a bathroom redone you want your kitchen overhauled you want that basement developed we recommend you trust the team at Complete Care Restoration, talented professionals, all trained, full service staff, everything from insulation, drywall, painting, carpentry, cabinetry, you name it, you'll find it at Complete Care Restoration. It was so great to hear from Karen over the weekend. As a matter of fact, on Remembrance Day, she sent us an email. She said, thank you so much for your meaningful episode. It was November 10th. It was Friday in advance of Remembrance Day. Karen said there is so little of substance on TV or other media this year in particular. So it was greatly appreciated. Karen, we appreciate that. She said, I want you to know that your advocacy, Real Talk's advocacy supported by Chris Labas here and We Know Training's sponsorship on Real Talk for the Juno Center. Uh, you can check out junobeach.org to learn more about this center. It's a museum um, preserving the memory and, of course, the recognition of Canadian servicemen and women's contributions to peace uh, and the sacrifice made there on D-Day. It's Canada's second World War Museum in Normandy, France. Uh, Karen says, because of that and because of your mention of their flag sponsorship program, it prompted me to finally sponsor a flag yesterday, which is absolutely amazing to hear, Karen. Uh, you can learn more about that again at junobeach.org. This flag sponsorship program, um, not, we, we recognize that not everybody will be able to donate $500, but if you do donate $500, you can own a Canadian flag that actually flew over Normandy Beach. They change the flags all the time to ensure that they're properly represented. Um, and all of the flags that have flown above Normandy Beach are now being sent to Canadians and other people around the world that are donating a minimum of $500 uh, to allow and to support the Juno Beach Center to continue to do its work. Of course, you could donate $5, and that would be amazing as well. She says, when that center was being built, I bought a brick to support their efforts, but I had not donated since then. She says, back in 2006, I was grateful to visit Normandy and the Juno Beach Center. Wow. And I highly recommend that all Canadians take that opportunity if they're able. Uh, Karen says, to real talkers, to my fellow real talkers, if you're ever looking for a very interesting book about a fallen soldier from World War I, I recommend The Path of Duty, the wartime letters of Alwyn Bramley Moore from 1914 to 1916. He was an MLA who had some fascinating views about Alberta's place in the world. Karen says again, thank you for making time on Real Talk for occasions such as Remembrance Day. She says, I'll sign off now. I'm off to the Cenotaph. 
for services, lest we forget. She signs off Karen, a proud Patreon supporter. Karen, we sure appreciate that. Again, if you feel compelled to or led to support the Juno Beach Center, in particular, uh, in particular to donate to their flag sponsorship program, you can check out the donate link at junobeach.org. Coming up on Thursday's Real Talk, a couple of conversations that we're looking forward to. We know a lot of you are big fans of Senator Paula Simons. She'll return to the show, and we've got a lot of ground to cover. Plus, Tasha Carradine, an interesting piece in the National Post about Gen Z and anti-Semitism. I suspect we'll be talking about university campuses again. And, of course, we'll welcome your participation, whether that's live or later on demand right here on Real Talk. Real Talk is hosted by Ryan Jesperson, Executive Producer Josh Dunford, Technical Producer John Hicks, General Manager Katie Cook-Chivers, Account Coordinator Lawrence Durlego, Human Resources Lena Shepard, Website Design Mike Johnston, VoiceOver by me, Carrie Skelton. Real Talk's editorial board is Sapria Duvetti, Ahmed Ali, Brandi Morin, Anne Castleman, Corey Hogan, Harmon Candola, Catherine O'Neill, and Chris Henderson. Member Emerita, Julie Rohr. Real Talk is recorded in Edmonton, Alberta on Treaty 6 territory, the traditional and ancestral territory of the Cree, Dene, Blackfoot, Soto, and Nakota Sioux, home to the Métis settlements and the Métis Nation of Alberta. Real Talk is a relay project. For more, check out ryanjasperson.com.